Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy. Nice to have you tuning in to episode 29 of the Howie Games. The Caribbean Premier League cricket continues for me. Last week I was in Guyana where they were having a few problems in Georgetown, it must be said. So how many escaped from the prison? Um, like, 20, like 22. 200? No, 22 persons. 22 people escaped? They escaped. They, um, how long ago? Like two weeks ago. How did they escape? They, um, they, they light the prison on fire. They lit the prison on fire yeah. and ran out the front door? Yes. Have they caught many of them? Um, yeah, a um, couple of them are on the run. Where do they go? Up into the jungle? Yeah. Thankfully, I did not meet any of those escaped prisoners. Beautiful part of the world, and I did get to that waterfall I mentioned to you in episode 28, Kaicha Falls. It was a mission. Oh, was it a mission, but it was well worth the trip. So if you ever find yourself in Guyana, check it out. It's mind-blowing. They could help out if they try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. They've got to try, try, try. This week, have we stepped up a notch? We've left South America and have gone to Jamaica. Yeah, a super cool place. If you love your cricket, you need to come here because they are mad for cricket. They absolutely pack in a Sabina Park. There's no spare room. They go off. There's drums. There's rum. There's dancing. General good times. A little bit of cricket as well. Super, super spot to commentate. Here's another opportunity. Two sixes in a row. No. Caught. Game over. Gale, look at him celebrate. El Dorado. He's riding Ravi Rampal like a horse. Extraordinary scenes at Sabina Park. Smiles all round. Jamaica, obviously the birthplace of Bob Marley as well. For those that love their cricket, Michael Holding, Whispering Death himself, Courtney Walsh, Chris Gale, Usain Bolt. Now, he would make a podcast and a half, Usain Bolt, doing everything I can to track him down over here at the moment. Zero, zero, zero luck. But... Doing the best I can. Not sure I'm going to have much luck. We'll have a crack at it. Anyway, this week, something a little bit different. A two-parter. Yep, one guest, two episodes. Earlier this year, the Howie Games headed to Noosa, love that part of the world, to record an episode with Mark Webber. Firstly, your man Mark Webber, has he got a fair old pad on the hill overlooking Noosa, overlooking the water? Obviously, driving fast cars pays pretty well. Now, Mark spoke so well and I pestered him for so long that we've actually turned this into two episodes. Mark Webber has had some career, any way you look at it. In Formula One, 215 starts, nine wins, 42 podiums, three third-place finishes in the World Championship. Add to that a world title in more recent years in sports cars, and it makes Mark Webber one of Australia's most successful racers. As I said, two parts. So the first episode this week deals with the journey just to get to Formula One. The boy from Queen Bean, all the hardship along the way, the lack of money, the backdoor deals, of which there are plenty, and a moment in 1999 when Mark thought his life was about to end in a German forest. Here we go. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The Mercedes has taken off. The car flew right up in the air, over the barriers, over the wire, and into the trees. Let's look at this again. This is an awful accident. An awful accident. Yeah, tough old caper. Now, after interviewing Mark many, many times over the years at Albert Park at the Grand Prix, I never really got the sense of what he was all about. Then a few years, and Network 10 signed him up to join us in coverage, and it was absolutely wonderful. Everyone got to know him. He's just a really relaxed, laid-back guy, very approachable, and he's one of those rare people that would have, no doubt, a million stories to tell, but he's always seemingly more interested in hearing your story, which is really, really cool. He's completely unaffected by his wealth and almost seems to shun the rock star lifestyle, and let's be honest, a lot of the F1 boys like the old rock star lifestyle, 
But I guess the part of Mark that really has had the most impact on me is his absolute desire to succeed in whatever he does and his real interest in pushing those around him to succeed. He really wants people to do the best they can. So he pushes people in a nice way to take a risk, basically have a crack at life, which is why he's the perfect guest for the Howie Games. Anyway, here we go. Enjoy the first part of Mark Webber AO as he takes you on the road to Formula One. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion I could not be more happy to sit down with Mark Webber on the Howie Games. You are looking fit. We're here in your beautiful place in Noosa. Life looks like it's going all right, mate. How are you? Good, mate. Yeah. I've heard a lot about your podcast, mate. They've been going well. So, they um, have. They have. Pleasure to be on. Um, we normally start these things at the start, but before we do, we're just talking about your beautiful house up here on the Sunshine Coast. Life has been pretty good to you. Motorsport's been good to you. It's, it's, it's turned out all right. It, uh, oh, look, mate, I... Um, yeah, I often pinch myself, no question about it. Uh, you know, w- the journey that, uh, that, that it took me on, uh, the people that I work with, uh, what I learn about myself uh, professionally and privately, uh, all those things uh, to con- constantly get more out of yourself and, and, and uh, continue to learn. So, uh, yeah, my life was around the stopwatch generally. So uh, that's mm. what I had to... That was my barometer, so I had to work around that. And thankfully, you know, it was in my favour um, more than it wasn't, so that helped. And, um, you know, I had a pretty long career at it and, and really I just never, ever, you know, when I left here, I just, you know, I was you know, I dream, I just had this dream about doing a quarter, a half or what, you know, whatever I did. Um, so it turned out it turned out okay, mate, but um, I do, do never, ever, uh, you know, get ahead of myself and think that... Um, you know, it was. I certainly don't take for granted what happened. You seem so relaxed now, and that, that might sound funny coming from me, but obviously my first dealings with you, and we were just talking about it out there before. Last year you worked on the coverage with me, um, and we were interviewing drivers when they arrived, and I was saying, this is bizarre, because for the last seven or eight years, this had been your home Grand Prix. You had a million requests, and I was like, oh, I've got to try and interrupt Mark in front of all these fans. It's race morning, and he wants to win his home Grand Prix more than anything else. You're a reasonably intense cat at those stages, <laughs> as people would appreciate. You look relaxed now, though. Yeah. Um, look, it's very different, I think, we're, you know... We're, and I've learnt a lot with that post-career. I think that when you're competing, uh, particularly at race weekends, you know, when you're when you're there and you've got so much on your plate, uh, whether you've got you know a huge focus from the team, the expectation from you, they're paying you obviously, you know, uh, pretty well to do a job for them uh, at a very very high level mm. throughout the whole season. It's not just we arrive at a individual event. You know, you've got to look at the whole. The, the mental side of it and, and your batteries. How do you get through these these seasons and, and break that down? And then you've got to get the best out of the resources and work with your team. So the media clearly was sometimes part of our business and part of our profession that saw not the real person, if you like, because they got the 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 blowtorch sometimes in terms of being pretty short and sweet and you know it was something which was uh, could be a hindrance but when now I've stopped out the other side of that <laughs> you totally I totally see it and I totally get um, and I'm fascinated by watching presenters or pundits or people trying to pull information out of sports men, men and women which you know I've got a lot of heroes that you know obviously you know competing now and it's nice to sort of see how they 
get the best out of them and, and see how tricky that is and how intense it is for the person that's in there. They're in that bubble. You can see they're totally in that bubble and that's how it probably really needs to be because that's how focused and, and, and determined they need to be to get the job done. Well, I've got to say, right at the top, you never blowtorch me. You're always very good. You're always very good even on the 5,000th request. Right, where did all this start for you? You're... you're yeah, family's based in Queen Bean, just yep. outside of Canberra. So yep. what, what are your first memories of that part of the world? And your mum and dad, what were they all about? Yeah, uh, oh, a, a, a brilliant household, really, really lucky to grow up. Um, we weren't far from the showground down there in Queen Bean, um, in Iron Avenue. And uh, yeah, grew up with my sister there and mum and dad. And yeah, dad had a petrol station and uh, a motorbike shop You know, together. They were sort of a, a dual little business there. And um, yeah, just grew up, made loads of sport growing up. Um, you know, the real have-a-go mentality. Uh, generally knocking around on BMX bikes. And, and uh, yeah, school was a bit of a challenge for me because um, it got in the way of my, not my social scene, but my, my adrenaline's uh, weekends, which I loved. What's, uh, what's a typical yeah. report Mark Webber's getting in his early days at school? Pretty average, mate. Right. Pretty average. Um, <laughs> yeah. So if I applied myself, which was rare, uh, I didn't go too bad. Um, and I think with me at school, it was really uh, the... I needed, like I suppose most you, you, you've got to get on with the teacher. And if I did have a pretty good relationship, then there was a chance I'd, I'd go okay. But if I just rebelled and it sort of, you know, I was obviously pretty stubborn and, and didn't get on, then the, the the mask would reflect that relationship, I think. So um, I was a bit of a one-man band. I was pretty disruptive too at school. Like I, I enjoyed, um, you know, being a bit of a class a clown, if you like. And um, really? yeah, sort of, I suppose. So that was... You know, that was, uh, yeah, that was, you know, a few tricks here and there. So I think, you know, for me, when I started then karting or through motorbikes early on, so I started on the motorbikes um, and, you know, just I played Aussie rules, mate. I played a bit of tennis, played a bit of golf, played, you know, lots of different sports, which I enjoyed. And I think that um, I didn't really know how, I suppose, competitive and how intense I was until I sort of got into my racing. That's when it really started to hit me that actually, you know, the passion started to light up at that point. Being an F1 driver, I'm tipping Aussie rules. You weren't in the back line. I'm tipping you were either centre half forward or full forward. Which was it? Full forward, mate. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. So full you're forward. destined to be a driver. Full forward, mate. Yeah, I'll just sit there and just uh, you know, you know, grab a few goals off the back there. And there wasn't too many specky marks, mate. So um, what about yeah, tough tackles? Yeah, Did you ever yeah. tackle anyone or not? Uh, yeah, not too much, mate. I played a rugby league too, so we had oh. to obviously tackle there. But um, yeah. I enjoyed the AFL. It was obviously a, um, I mean, yeah, you had to be fit, obviously charging around and doing your thing and get your oranges at half time and have a go again and here we go on there. Because us from Queenbeen, obviously, playing the Canberra sides, it was really hard for us because, you know, that was the old thing they used to call a struggle town or call us, you know, it was, it was tr- you know, tricky. It was... The, the the strong sides were in, in Canberra generally, but we punched above our weight. We used to win some good stuff, and, and that was, um, I suppose, a little bit of that, uh, you know, underdog spirit from the early early days um, did come from that. Which is a theme that's gone through your whole career, which I really want to have a chat with you about. But your initial forays and interest in motorsport, this is through your dad, obviously? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so he loved it? Loved it. He used to hitchhike to Sydney, to Warwick Farm. He? he used to watch Jack Brabham and Jimmy Clark and the guys racing in the Tasman Series and they used to come out here in the winter, um, or UK, sorry, Northern Hemisphere winter and uh, summer down here. Um, they had a beautiful little series there in the 60s and 70s where they used to come and race out here, which was awesome. So Dad loved that. His heroes were 
with those guys in, in, in F1. Um, and, uh, you know, he had, used to constantly remind me, oh, mate, I had to wait, you know, sometimes two days to get a report on how Jack went in a race, you know, in the Dutch Grand Prix or the Belgian Grand Prix or something like that. <laughs> so that was really, for him, um, something that he loved following. So, yeah, then karting, you know, dad, you know, and I had friends that raced go-karts uh, as well. Um, you know, the go-kart track, thankfully, was just outside Queenbeam which would, you know, I would never, ever have had this career, you know, if I, you know, you, you can't have a go-kart track everywhere, clearly. Uh-huh. Uh, but it just goes to show you that, you know, having these type of facilities where, um, you know, and I think Dad also, he openly says it was, it, was a, it was a really good, healthy distraction for me too. I was passionate about it, but also, you know, I had, you know, I wasn't, um, you know, <laughs> an angel by any means. So, you know, I had, it, it was good for me to focus on something and he saw that. So, uh, You remember yeah. your first... Go in a go-kart? Yeah, I do, yeah. It was freezing cold, typical Canberra and Queanbeyan. Um, it was fresh. Uh, a couple of pairs of gloves and a jumper over the top of the... I don't even think I had a race suit. I think it was just trackies and a, trackies and a jumper and um, <laughs> two-stroke and, yeah, beautiful smell and, uh, yeah, and just those, just the wind, you know, you know, around your neck and, you know, just the, the, the buzz of being so close to the ground, you know, the seat and just the sensation of speed was sensational and, you know, missing the little curbs and the accuracy that was involved. And um, at what age is know, this? I was 12, 13. No, probably a 13, yeah. And so, were you good at it from the start or not so? So, uh, karting-wise, I think it was um, – I, I suppose I was I – was, I was pretty good locally where I was obviously it wasn't that high level I suppose um, totally the wrong size for go-karts mm. you know, I was always a bit of a, a bit of a, uh, a consistent thread through my career there but um, bit big for karting but uh, yeah um, it did okay locally um, and then pretty quickly and that's where dad was quite good he said okay this is we can we can win here locally but we need to start to do a bit of travel so um, you know racing at Oran Park a lot in Sydney and um, yeah so that was good. So were you watching Grand Prix on, I guess, probably Channel 9 with, was it Big Darrell Eastlake? And totally. I love yeah. Darrell Eastlake. Big Daz was a legend. Um, he, well, he supported me a lot as well once I got did going you? over there. Daz used to come over there and we did a few things together. And, um, yeah, he was just so, so brilliant. And there's there can never be enough guys like Darrell Eastlake in, in, in media and sport in our country that just it's, had the athletes... Uh, ambitions at heart he was there was no undercurrent he just was really really pumped about seeing you do well very special guest too back in australia on a flying visit the man that we tipped would be the next australian into uh, formula one and he's almost there mark weber good to have you back in the studio no problems thanks so you were watching um, the Grand Prix. Grand Prix, yep. For, watch, what, did you sit down with your old man and oh, watch it, or well, Dad was snoring, but I was, <laughs> I was, I was, um, I was pumped up. I'd probably have to go to bed, and then he'd wake me back up because obviously they were pretty late at night. Uh, but mate, that was f- absolute religion for was me. It? Religion. I tape everyone. I'd watch them that night. I'd get home Monday afternoon, watch it again. Um, so you know, a couple. Of, I remember getting home from school, a couple of bowls of ice cream, sit there, watch uh, a few more Grand Prix. And I hope my kids don't listen to this. Yeah. Couple of ice cream. So, um, mate, I was just addicted to it. Totally addicted to it. My mates thought I was, yeah, crazy. You know, and no, come round and let's watch a Grand Prix. And it's like, eh, no, it's all right, mate. I'll be all right. <laughs> so, who, who, were yeah. you, who were your heroes at that stage? Yeah, I, I did. I think. Alain Prost was, because Dad liked Prost, um, he just loved how, you know, he was very easy on the car, you know, very meticulous in terms of his approach to the race. And so I think, you know, you know when you're young, obviously Dad's pretty influential on who, who you might like and who you should support. So, um, yeah, so he was um, one of my heroes. But, 
yeah. He's just, I mean, PK, Mansell, Senna, Prost. I mean, it was just a, you know, for me, the, the, the mid to late 80s and early 90s was exactly that when I was racing karts and Formula Ford and then when I went to Europe. I mean, it was, yeah, that's, they're all your heroes. So it was the first time you saw a Grand Prix car on a track. It was probably Adelaide, was it? Yeah, did you, did the old man take you to Adelaide? Yeah, drove over Adelaide, mate. Thirteen hours in what the old Ford Falcon, mate. Yeah, it was sensational. Never forget it. Uh, loved it. You know, so excited. Wanted to buy a t-shirt, and so I got that on and Adelaide Alive t-shirt, and <laughs> banged that on, and um, I think I had it on three days straight. Sat in the opposite the grandstand, which was, you know, for dad. I mean, it was bloody. It was really expensive, you yeah. know, to drive us over there and have the accommodation. I remember we stayed in the Adelaide Hills there. We had quite a long longish drive to the track each day um, then a long walk to the track but you could still even smell the fuel then you could hear the cars um, and I remember the first time I saw actually it was Martin Brundle he drove past the first time and um, he I just thought these guys are absolute heroes like I just thought I knew it was going to be quick but I thought this is just ridiculous how fast these cars are and there's no way they're human strapped into that thing. Right. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. And uh, actually Gerhard Berger won that race uh, that year and, um, yeah, um, and it's bizarre now. I've spent quite a bit of time with Gerhard now in Europe and, and different things here and there and I, I often tell him the story about, the, you know, the first race I saw there when Gerhard won. So, yeah, so, and so, that so fueled you, the fire. That so fueled do, the fire. Do you walk away from that, you know, when I was in the cricket nets, I wanted to play for Australia. It was never going to happen. But did you walk away from that thinking, right, I want to be a Formula One driver? I think or is it, it too distant? Yeah, totally. It's still, you know, in your head. It's just so far away. You can't even, you can't even believe it's going to be possible. I mean, I hung around after the race. I got in the pits. I jumped a few walls and tried to get in there and get as close as I could to things. And um, obviously completely, you know, illegally. But then back <laughs> then, you know, it was a bit more laid back, wasn't it? You could do those sort of yep. things. So, um Love that, really loved it, and and you know I'd dine on that, dine dine out on that in my head for months. You know that was like you know Adelaide to then the first race the year after. It was like you know three or four months as we know, and it was like horrible things. Like well, what am I going to do now? I've got nothing to watch. I've got you know. Right. So um, yeah, I loved rugby league. I love certain things in Australia. Don't get me wrong. Like I loved all that era, but you know for me it was it was absolute motorsport. Um, yeah, growing up. I'm going to distract you a little bit here because it was always a sort of one of those rumours or stories that floated around that you were involved. Was it with Canberra in mm. the rugby league scene? Yeah. There's always a story that you were a, a ball boy or a totally, boy. I was. Is that, yeah, is that a true story. Totally, yeah. I was a ball boy. Yep. So um, took the sand out for Big Mal. Did you? Uh, yeah. Big Mal so, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, we did. Uh, I think it was 1990 and 91. Um, so it was 10 bucks a game. So I did under 21s in reserve grade and first grade. So it's 30 bucks a weekend, which is big coin back then, mate. Um, so, so uh, yeah, for for um, yeah, running the sand out to Mal and um, and actually quite interesting. It was the Raiders at that point. They sort of had slightly older uh, ball boys. Didn't have because you could do it. You know, really, really young. Obviously, you know, sort of 10, I suppose. But I was yeah, as a bit older, sort of 13 or yeah, 13. So I was on racing carts and. It's quite interesting because, like, Wayne Bennett, the Tim Sheens of this world, all those sort of guys, they were like, um, when the guys will kick for touch, you know, a penalty, you've got to, you know, get it in, you know, when they take the quick tap, you know. So they were actually encouraging us to sort of get down and make sure the boys, you know, and you're like, well, I'm bloody involved here. This is awesome. <laughs> and one day they stopped the match, actually pulled me on the field at Bruce Stadium and, and they had to, Mal had to have a chat to me about, um, you know, because they had to put the ball in front of the touch judge's feet, you know, before the, they yep. quick take the 
take the quick tap. So we were, um, and then when the other side, when the other side got the pen, we'd hold the ball up, and you know, and uh, so we loved it, mate. We we were so we'd bleed, mate, for our boys, and uh, yeah, have a bit of fun with that. And um, what an experience for young blokes, yeah, and to see professional athletes yeah, up close, absolutely, yeah. Um, it was intense, you know, seeing the guys getting ready for for those matches, and um, I mean, that was when the Raiders were, you know, you're looking at Laurie Daly, Ricky mm. Stewart, Bradley Clyde, uh, half the Australian team, well, a lot of the Australian team was playing for the Raiders at the time, and obviously. You know, Mal was a colossal leader, you know, and, you know, I had no idea what I was looking at, mate, you know, seeing how awesome he was. I was trying to grab what I could, but Dad's like, make sure you listen and see what you can learn. And I'm like, yeah, Dad, whatever you reckon. Like, you know, 13 and 14, you know everything, don't you? So I didn't, mm. there's nothing I can learn off these guys. But it was, it was like, yeah, this is, um, yeah, these guys actually want to win. This is quite interesting to watch, you know, so it was, it was good experience. So what's happening with your motor racing at this stage? You're still doing your best at school. Mm. Um, you're turning up. So <laughs> you're progressing through carts. Your old man started to take you to Oran Park and these yeah. places. Yeah. So I uh, won the state titles in Orange. Um, was that a big deal? Yeah, that was pretty big, mate, yeah. Um, yeah, that helped. Um, but Dad, I think he knew that he... He had a limited amount of funds. We know racing's expensive and he still had his eye on or the vision was to still try and race cars at some point. So that means going from go-karts into like Formula Ford or the next step from that. So, and clearly you need to do a little bit of that here in Australia um, before, you know, I mean, his visionary was, I mean, he wasn't pushy at all, but he, I think he just had a bit of a plan in his mind in which he sort of kept to himself in a way that see how he goes here. If that goes well, then we might do that and then sort of move things along. So... Um, yeah, I did did sort of four or five years of karting um, and raced at a, at, a, at a good level. It didn't clean up by any means in Australia again because I think Dad was, you know, there was certainly guys spending more to, you know, get, you know, fresh air, fresh air and tyres. Unfortunately, that's motorsport, right? So It is. Um, and again, like I said, the size was a little bit of a challenge. But um, And I wasn't doing the mileage. I wasn't, it wasn't as serious, I suppose, as we could probably have done it. But then I test drove a Formula Ford, which is the next, that's a big deal. When you're sort of 16, 17, you drive a Formula Ford, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a 220, 240k an hour racing car at a young age with concrete walls around mm. certain tracks. That's a serious thing. So when I drove, test drove one of those, I really, it just come alive for me. It's like, okay. And there was people there for my first test and it was like, yeah, he's, this is going well for him. He's really starting to show something. So I think my dad locked onto that and yeah, went, uh, went into car racing. Yeah, 94, 95 here in Australia. So, at age. Um, yeah. Yeah, so what was I then? So that would have been, I was 70, I was 18. So, yeah, I was born in 76. Yep. So were you, were you, did you have a job or anything? Or what, what? Yeah, well, and did I have a job? Yeah, so I was, um, I did my uh, apprenticeship as a plumber, which uh, did a little bit on the Canberra Hospital there, mate. So I think the toilets are still working there. A plumber? Um, I wouldn't yeah, have picked so, that. Yeah, so uh, did a bit of that, mate. Um, and then... I was delivering pizzas during the week as well. well you would have so, been good yeah, at that. Yeah, I was, I was very good at that. <laughs> they mate. would have been hot. Seeing some girlfriends as well, so that was good. Sometimes I was a bit late for the next job, but um, it was it was good. They would have been the hottest yeah, pizzas yeah, in Queen Bean if were, you were mate. delivering them. Oh, yeah, God, yeah. Yeah, not, there wasn't too many police chases. It was all good, but a um, it was... A plumber. <laughs> we had... Yeah, and it was quite, you know, this pizza shop, we just, basically all of our mates worked there and the manager was one of the, you know, we knew the girls there and the whole, it was just like, 
Mate, it was, you could have made a movie. You right. could have made a movie out of the pizza shop. <laughs> it was sensational. Um, we had a ball and we had all our cars out the back and we're firing the pizzas in and off we go. And Are you a Hawaiian man? Yeah, or a, yeah I'd have a Hawaiian, mate, a bit okay. of pepperoni. Um, right. But depends, you know, if we're going to a dress that we didn't like, we'd obviously put a, you know, some different toppings and rah-rah and a bit of, yeah, so it was uh, no GPS then, mate. It was, all, no. it was all winging it. So this flat, where's this guy, you know, this address and you're going up these stairs at, you know, 10.30 at night and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. So it was, it was, it was a good experience. And did you... Uh, at this stage, you're getting your first car at this point? Yeah, absolutely. So I love that. Love that. I had a Toyota Corona, 69, two-speed, two on the tree. Colour? Um, oh, mate, she was... What was she? She was like a, a real off, like a snot green. Gorgeous. <laughs> Chicks loved it. No, Chicks yeah, loved it. Did. We get it was get six... I mean, I don't know how many people used to get in it. Um, you know, actually, there was no seatbelts in that car. That's how she was back then. Right. So um, we used to load her up. And I used to do um, lunchtime rally stints um, outside Queanbeyan, uh, Carabao High School. So we'd go out in the bush there. In, at lunchtime? Yeah, lunchtime, yeah. Load her up and just go hard in the bush. And it was just... I look back now and just thinking, what was I thinking? You know, we were loaded up. It was just crazy, you know. Right. So pretty loose, mate. Pretty loose. And I think my dad saw that. So I needed to... He needed to channel... Needed to get me, you know... Get on the rails. So the first Formula Ford season, what do you reckon your old man's chipping in to get things up and running there? Yeah, so mate, it was probably um, it was probably around about a hundred grand. It's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, it's That's a, a lot. lot of money. A lot of coin. Um, so and that was so. Come the middle of the next year, he was pretty much. I mean, this is a lot of dads. You know, the second year was already out of stretch. You couldn't go again at that. You absolutely could not go again at that. So Yellow Pages thankfully come in for about 65 to 70 grand, which was sensational How'd at that, that time. Come about? Yeah, through Anne. Anne. Right. So, um, well, this is a good time to start that's with right. Anne. Yeah, so who obviously I'm uh, my longtime partner and now wife. Um, so Anne was um, involved in the Formula Ford series in Australia. She was doing some um, the press work for Ford and uh, helping with the championship and from a marketing and a commercial perspective here in Australia. And it was live on TV then. It was a su- Sunday afternoon. Formula Ford's got about seven or eight minutes of, of racing, which was you know not to be sniffed at. So we sent a package to a few or a few sponsorship packages to some teams, um, and she's like. Uh, this is this guy, uh, totally won nothing, um, but, yeah, you should sponsor him, <laughs> um, which was pretty much me. And Yellow Pages, uh, they went for it. They went for it, yeah, they, they, which was like, for, which for us was like a total, you know, it would have been all over. We could have done it on a shoestring and would have, you know, rolled around, but, you know, we, um, they were so, so supportive and so great. So that managed to... to uh, you know, have our have our second year racing here in Australia, um, and at the front won a lot of races. Didn't win the championship because I was just way too hot headed, too arrogant. Didn't believe in setup of the car. Wanted to do it myself. Yes, I know the car's not great, but I can just do it. I'm good enough because technically I didn't I didn't want to accept that I had to put the work in, um, and I was very naive to that and very arrogant with that. So um, which frustrated Dad a bit as well, I'd imagine. Um, so, but most pole positions, you know, loads of wins, but just, um, didn't, uh, I wanted to win everything and I wasn't prepared to stack the points up when I was having a rough day. So, um, mm. but that was a great year for me, um, in terms of learning. And at the end of that year, I then went to the UK and raced my first race in England because Van Diemen, who was the supplier of the, of those type, those particular racing cars at that time, and they still do it now. Um, they'd keep had kept a bit of an eye on me, and I went over to 
do a race in England at the end of that year and that went really really well which was a big big turning point for me to to be competitive and finish third in my first race at the Formula Ford World Championships where 95 guys um, are competing in that event and that was huge for me yeah. So at this stage are you starting to think I could make a profession out of this this is you're all in at this stage? Yeah that was a big that was a, a, a I want to say like a capitulation point on accepting that Europe is could happen clearly there's still a lot of sponsorship and things to be involved um but i think that um getting over there and you know you've got you know, if you want to be the best baseball player in the world basketball like whatever you've got to you know got to go to the states race mm. and drive you've got to get to europe mm. so let's get over there that's where all the hotbed is um and so pitched up at heathrow obviously you know didn't you know knew Anne. Um, you know, that was it. So we went over and, 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 and at the time, because here I was racing a 1600 engine and over in Europe they had an 1800 engine. So I, I wasn't up to speed with the engine they were using over there for that race. And the boss of Van Diemen, this manufacturer I'm talking about, um, who sort of said, come and have a look at it all. He said, to be honest, man, I'm a bit nervous. You're going to get smoked in the 1800. You're going to struggle because these guys are, they're on it. And maybe just do a test and go home. This is October of the of, uh, ninety-five, and I'm like, well, I don't really just want to do a test. I want to try and race if I can. Um, and he then, so we did a test in the eighteen hundred, and we did one at Stanton and uh, in the UK. And he said, righto, yep, seen enough. I reckon we can. We're going to have a go at the big race. And so we went in and. And that went well. And the end of that, Ralph at the bar said that night, he said, come back next year and heavily subsidised drive, um, which was great. So Duckham's, which is an oil company in the UK, they paid for half and Yellow Pages paid for the other half. And um, I was full-time in the UK thinking that I can win at that level. So then I'm, I'm in the UK, mate. I'm not, as a profession, profession I'm, I'm, I'm a, long, a long way off that. Um, well, actually, I wasn't too far away, as it turned out, but I thought in my mind that um, I could win at that level, but... I've still got a lot of work to do. Hey dude, Big Penguin here. And Pickle. Are you enjoying our man, the barbecue? Barbecue? What are you talking about, Pengy? Weber, the barbecue. Get with it, Pickle. Okay, smarty pants. Snap quiz. Name me 10 F1 drivers. Easy. And I'll even go old school. Here we go. John Alessi. Ricardo Patrese. The Belgian bomber, Thierry Boutsen. Emerson Fidopoldi. The flying fin maker, Hachenen. Hides Harold Fritzen. The Colombian Express. I love this guy. Juan Pablo Montoya. <laughs> Kabuki Napajina. He's Japanese. And Daddy's favourite. The 1997 world champion Jacques Villeneuve. Bang. How do you like them, Apples Pickle? Good effort, Pingo. Yeah, thanks, guys. Next week, our Mark Webber special continues with Mark now competing in Formula One itself. It's a really tough caper, obviously. And like many forms of motorsport, they always say the first person you have to beat in a motorsport category is your teammate. In Mark's case at Red Bull, that teammate was Sebastian Vettel. We didn't get on, mate. You know, we didn't we didn't get on because it was you know it was showing your hand. It was you know, socially impossible to you, know, you can't go out and talk about you know family life and weather and what's going on and, and how's everything going. It's it is it is tricky. Um, even competitions down to you know helicopters from the track. Well, I got the chopper before you, or whatever. You know, there was like it just constantly went on. Well, why is he in the first one? Why I'm in the second one? Whatever. So you wanted to try and 
you know, wear things down and, and um, you know, in meetings take the headset off when he when he spoke because I didn't really value what he said or vice versa. He'd do tricks for me. It was constant mind games on. And then we haven't even woven the media in there in terms of how all that went. So, mate, there's so many dynamics. Yeah, pretty full-on relationship, no doubt about that. Now, all right, let's rejoin Mark on his journey into Formula One. I read your book. Um, and actually finished it on the way up here on the plane. And congratulations, because there's a lot of sports books that you could skip 10 chapters and you don't miss anything. Um, and I really, really enjoyed your book. And it brought home to me how hard Anne and you worked to raise money. Mm. I've always known that you need money in motorsport, but tell me about that process, being a bloke from Canberra, starting out in the UK, how much money is required and, and what you guys did to try and generate that money. It blew me away, that part of it. Yeah, um, because the teams generally operate like it's, you know, for people that don't understand, they really, they need a budget to, 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 to run the car at a high level, obviously. So you've got engines, you've got chassis, you've got, you know, uh, insurances in place, you've got tyres, you've got brake. I mean, all the componentry you need. Um, so for them, they can see a way that the driver has to bring um, a budget or, you know, to help. It's a bit like paying for other sports. But obvious, the parents have got to pay for tennis rackets or pay for mm. a cycling bike or rah, rah, But you're paying for cars. You're paying for cars. Big so bucks. It's, it's, it's a problem. Um, and it's big bucks. So thankfully for my dad, um, at the time... Um, when I did that first year in Formula 4, which I just spoke about, which was a you know, huge amount of money for him and, and, and most of the work that he'd done. And also, mind you, it's a big shift for my sister too to get her head around that. So for us and the family, it was, it was, a, it was a massive deal and I never trivialised that in my head because it's a big, big commitment. And for me as well, it's like, wow, this is, this is serious. So when we got to Europe, well, when I left here, we had a raffle in Queenbee and we tried to do everything we can. We raised about, mate, we raised like six or seven grand, you know, which was like, Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Raffle. yeah, exactly. So it was pretty thin on the deck to get over there and okay. and um, get racing in Europe. And and then the pound against the dollar was three to one. So if you, you know, you take a dollar over there, you're getting thirty three, thirty three p, mm. which was tough going. So um, basically, I I worked as a, as an advanced racing instructor and 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 certain things that the racing drivers could do over there in the UK at the time at a lot of different tracks. Um, forty-three pound a day, and that would help. I mean, Anne was working as well, but that would help us, you know, get going. Anne had Luke from 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 um, previous relationship, um, so Lukey was about three or four. So we were, you know, we knew the we knew the price of milk and bread at that point. Like it was tight over there. It was uh, we were in a two-up two down in Aylesbury um, on the coppice, which was, you know, it's it's you know pretty pretty tight and pokey up there and and that's how we went racing i had a b ridge 1.1 fiesta which i bought for 500 quid off some shonky guy in essex um and that thing never broke down and i flogged that all around the country it was great but so that's how um and that was motivation man, because i turned up at some races and i saw guys turn up in m3s and m5s the brazilians the spanish and all these guys and said mate i'm gonna absolutely hose you when we get out there and the helmets are on that's that was fire for me it was total petrol on the fire because i'm like you know i don't care what you turn up in the race in or you've got the latest helmet and latest suits and all sort of stuff i know it don't make a difference mate when we get on the line uh you know that's where i'm gonna i'm gonna make a difference and that was a good blessing for me that you know it's it's some you know some tough love is good often and and that was um yeah difficult to get going uh and to have i think also when you give people the ideas what you want to do a lot of people think it's 
they don't have the vision maybe you do. So you come back here and try to tell them what's possible because keep in mind, let's you know, we've had 22 years between drinks for Australians and F1 at that time. Like, you know, how are you going to do it? What's going to happen, you know, between AJ and I winning was, was a long, long time. Is and that the plan at this stage? Have you guys written down a plan? This is... We're going to become a Formula One driver. Yeah. So Anne, it's a really nice piece of paper, and it's still around now, and actually it? it's in the book. Which is, um, yeah, the, there's just like a, a career path, which basically um, from '95 through to 2000, 2001, on this how we were going to try and get to F1. Did you believe um, in that piece of paper? Uh, I think it was really hard. Like when it's sitting in front of you, um, it's really hard when you got the F1 car at the top and the Benetton, and we want to hit that in 2000. Um, or a car, it didn't really matter which brand it was, but obviously anything would be would be absolutely phenomenal. But it was so still so far out of reach for me. All my, you know, just it was, you know, if you looked at the numbers next to, you know, at the time the category below F1 was Formula Three Thousand, where you needed seven hundred fifty thousand pounds to to do that, is never ever ever going to happen for me. I mean, the next category, Formula Three after Formula Ford, you know, that at that time, which was again three hundred sterling, three hundred thousand sterling. We just that we just did not have that money at all. No way, absolutely nowhere near it. So, um, how we got through, we how we navigated our way through those financial years and getting the sponsorship and the support we had through the different people to keep our nose above water was a fluke. Was was lucky. Was you know all those things that came together um, and. Because I was only on that regime, which we just spoke about in terms of a driver bringing the money to the tennis rackets for only about 18 months because Mercedes picked me up in 98. And then I did sort of turn pro, if you like. They paid for my racing. So they put me, took me under their wing. They paid for my racing, which was massively... Uh, fortunate because at not, by the middle of 97 I was coming home because it, we, had, we were dried up we were done David you're, Campisi was sensational so you were racing what at this stage? Formula 3 so and you were out and David Campisi come to the party yeah pretty much overnight um, we had nothing we had an Australian team boss at the time Alan Dockins a great guy um, we were doing really really well in the championship in that in that in with the with the budget we had we we're up against Jackie Stewart and all this and Jackie had like you know the, the situation they had financially was phenomenal and we had a little yellow pager sticker on the side of our car um, but we were still you know getting podiums and and then we won a race I won the the on the brands hatch Grand Prix circuit which is a real sort of man circuit if you like and for me off pole position was was a great victory for me at that time um, against the field I was with, and people were really starting to take notice that okay he hasn't got much backing here and who maybe someone can come to the party and support. And I think the Wallabies were playing in the UK at the time, and well they must have been. And then I drove to Heathrow to see David because David grew up in Queanbeyan. David Campese he grew up in Queanbeyan, and my dad knew Camp a bit obviously, and um, and. His parents lived very close to where Dad's servo was and used to service the cars and all that sort of thing. Um, and I went down to see Campo and I said, like, mate, if you can just have a look at this on the plane going back, I'm like, I'll, I'll be going home with my tail between my legs pretty soon as well if I can't get a bit of support. And obviously what Campo had was Campo had the vision. Campo had the global head. He knew what, it, how much it meant to me, you know, how much, you know, um, I wanted, you know, and I never say that word sacrifice because people talk, oh, the sacrifices I made. Well, mate, no, I'm not buying that because if you wanted enough, there was, I didn't make any sacrifices because I, I loved it all. And it was like, you know, if, I, if I made this stick, I'm going to race something which is going to be incredible. Mm. So it's not like, he just saw the hunger, I suppose, and the desire and he had the vision that, that I really did want it. And when he landed in Sydney, he said, yeah, okay, I'll support you so he gave me plenty of pounds um which was again nose above the water here we go again 
And great for me to have someone like that at the time um, believe in you too. Like, okay, yeah, he's going to – and responsibility too, right? So someone's going to do that personally for you. It's like, wow, this is this – is out, out of his own pocket? Yep. Did yep. he? Yep, yep. So it's not sponsorship wow. from a company and rah, rah, it's like, okay, here we go. Um, a lot so, of responsibility with yeah, that comes your way. Then, it was. It? It's like, yeah. So that was good. And it's a great blessing that you think, okay, wow, I've really got to now – Go, it's just another layer. It's another sense of responsibilities that, um, you know, there's obviously friendships in play and there's, you know, you, you know that he was obviously, you know, in terms of rugby union, you know, pretty handy as we all know. Mm. Um, so there's a level, right? So I had to, and worked out okay. It's obvious that you couldn't be here talking about this now without Anne, your now wife. Um, and congratulations, I don't think I've seen you since you Thanks, got married. Yeah. Um, you got that nice little ring on your <laughs> finger. At what stage, if you don't mind me asking, did she go from being um, a part of your career to being the light of your life? I think pretty pretty much so. I mean, when we went to Europe, then, um, you know, we knew that, that um, we were obviously pretty fond of each other at that point and, you know, we... We just love spending time together and, and we're on this great journey and, and she wanted to go back to England. She was um, not particularly... She moved. She was living in Australia at that time. She's like, okay, I'm not um, overly... Um, you know, in, she wasn't enjoying her time in Australia as much as she thought at that time and she's like, I want to go back um, and worked out that, okay, well, mega. Yeah, I want to go over there too and, you know, well, let's go, go over there and give it a crack together and she was trying to establish herself back over there in terms of she was still working inside media and marketing... Um, you know, because there was certainly no income coming from me. Um, so, yeah, and then we, obviously, we lived together and, and uh, it went from there. So, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, absolute rock. You know, you need the these these constants in your life, I think, are very important. Well, particularly for me, anyway, having some stability in that sense was was uh, was a great barometer to to keep that consistency there and 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 have that belief right because obviously there is some headwinds there's a lot of headwinds that come with you know trying to get to that type of level I suppose because it's so elitist and such a, a big steep pyramid at the end um, and it was quite funny and, and it's about the time where we are now in this conversation in terms of my career but when I did turn pro for example so when Mercedes did take me on and pay for my rest of my season in Formula 3, which is around 200,000 sterling. Um, they paid for that, but they also put me on a salary, which was like 70,000 German marks. So 70,000 German marks is about, you know, whatever at the time would have been about sort of about the same in Australian dollars, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it was like, my God, <laughs> unbelievable. Like, you know, I've made it, you know. And then, the old, you know, she's quick to say, like, made what? Like, you're absolutely, you know, it was great in terms of the whole realisation of, yeah, we haven't done anything. We absolutely have not done anything. So this is just like the actual, we are so, so on, on, on in terms of the climate Everest, we haven't put our shoes on yet. Must, so, be, must yeah. be rewarding to share that with someone that you love, that type of journey, because most of us, our, our work life and our personal life are pretty separate. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and it did come with those challenges, absolutely, mate. It did... Um, did come with us challenges because obviously we're way too close to it and we couldn't sometimes, you know, the council was 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 too personal and, and how we're going to get, you know, the best out of this. Um, were people telling you that? Um, it was more ourselves as well. Right. Um, there was people, but also it was like, well, 
you know, there is it, is it is tricky. And then getting someone in neutral, which we did later on in terms of management and having other people that were clearly, um, you know, you can't. It's, 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 it would be abnormal or unusual to have your your partner in this in this sense go in and negotiate, you know, contracts for you in Formula One, which which clearly didn't happen. You know, mm. obviously had other people to do that. So, but she was really then in the background. Once I got, um, I mean, two F one. She then knew that she was. It was. It was not out of her depth, but she was. She didn't have the experience. She just didn't have the the knowledge of of of, of, of getting those drives and understanding the business as as well as she she knew other people did. But she was still, in terms of positioning and marketing and and the brand and having other things in the background. She was she was clearly um, still uh, very much involved in that. I think when you talked about Mercedes, mate, I think um, you sort of have those moments, and I, I think back, I don't know whether it was the same with the Australian public, but it was certainly with me the first time I, I guess I became aware of you and what you're all about was seeing <laughs> that Mercedes sports car <laughs> attempting to be an aeroplane in the forest up at, was it Le Mans? Yeah, Le Mans, yeah. Um, still probably the most frightening motor racing thing I've ever seen, to be honest, mate. Yeah, no, you're right, Howie. I think... Um it did actually, you're right, I and mean, I haven't thought of that for a long time, but actually it did sort of put me on the map, bizarrely, uh, or here. I mean, I was doing a bit more in Europe, obviously, that people Absolutely, keep, keep it on. Did. But here it was like, oh, yeah, he did go over there, didn't he? He did go and race in Europe, and oh, that's what he's doing now. He's, he's turning cars into aeroplanes. Exactly, yeah. So, so what happened, mate? What happened? Yeah, um, yeah, it was it was pretty um, pretty uh, you know, clearly massively dangerous. Um, the cars at the time, those regulations were were dangerous. The cars were, were were quick in a straight line, but aerodynamically, the way that the regulations were done at the time was that there was a lot of um, exposure to the cars getting light in the front, particularly at high speeds, over crests or behind other cars, because the wake aerodynamically of another car, it's a bit like a speedboat saying, well, you've got to cross the wake of behind another speedboat without having any disturbance. Well, mm-hmm. it's impossible. You can't do that. And that's how aerodynamics work as well, right? So that's why two planes don't take off behind each other on a runway because the second plane will go off the end of the runway so they need clean air same with uh, racing cars mm. and these cars were very sensitive to that disturbed air in the front which obviously you can't see but we can feel in the car um so yeah we were doing it was thursday night at le mans and we had a um night practice well it was more dusk you know it was all going night and i was behind a very experienced driver called frank biller um who was German Audi factory driver and been around forever and I'm coming up behind him young charger and just doing my thing and our car was quite quick in a straight line and he knew that at the time so he was sort of half sort of cooperating with me and, and sort of pulling to one side because at Le Mans on the straights it's really narrow and super high speed obviously you know three, 330, 340 at the time um, and I just felt the front of the car go light you know and I thought I had never felt it go that light that fast before and as soon as blink of an eye I mean obviously my reflexes aren't too bad and um, you know, I was, it just all went quiet and I just had this massive compression, G-force compression with the car, then starting this flip, which I knew at that time, it's like, this is really, really bad because, you know, you've only got the the, the, the guardrails, which are like, you know, a metre and a half high on the side um, of the track and there's just trees everywhere. So I'm like, if, if, I, if this thing goes off into the trees, um, I don't think I can survive this. I'll probably get killed. Here we go. Oh my God, oh my God, the Mercedes has taken off. The car flew right up in the air, over the barriers, over the wire, and into the trees. Let's look at this again. This is an awful accident. 
An awful accident. Because How fast are you going? Um, well, probably took off at 300. Kilometres so, an hour. Yeah, 300 k. But then the car obviously decelerates a lot when it's when you've got that whole surface area of the car braking against that. So, I mean, the speed backs off a lot, obviously, but you've still got this thing which weighs 900 kilos like a leaf just flying around. <laughs> so I thought that if I go into the trees, the branches, you know, I know how thin the windscreen is on this car. You know, these cars aren't... They're designed to do a lot of things in terms of a crash, you know, impact with other cars, impact with barriers, impact with lots of different scenarios, head-on, rear-on, side-on, rah-rah-rah, but they're not designed to go in trees. And, you know, you think about it, it's incredible how when people say you have, when an orb comes before you and you think you're going to, you know, you could, you know, cop it, um, it does slow down. The frame rate was so slow. I was thinking, I thought of Anne... Mum, my sister, thought of all the obviously females in my life. I'm thinking, wow, this is maybe this is it. Maybe this is this is you know 22 at Le Mans. You know, I might meet my maker here, and um, so it was. It's quite intense in terms of what you feel at that time. And I, as I say, if these trees come to this cockpit, this is going to be very bad. So then the car landed. I was still inside the track. I got a rough idea of my orientation pretty quickly, and the car righted itself. Pretty, pretty big, sharp pain in the neck and survived it. Like, it just came down and the car was destroyed, but I'm like, wow, that was a close shave because clearly, as a racing driver, that is, you know, a scenario when you're completely out of control of the consequences mm. is, uh, is unusual. You know, normally we are in control of most scenarios and it's very similar to aviation or airline pilot, whatever. To, to be in, at a point where you are not in control of the aeroplane for a certain period is definitely not good news and the same for us. So um, that's a, a scenario which we rarely are rarely faced with, but that was an ugly, ugly crash. Um, and so... You go yeah, back to the garage? Yeah, so then get out of the car, um, you know, the bit of panic, obviously. It's all, you know, the <laughs> Frenchies, are, Frenchies are going flat out in, Fran in French and, you know, I'm just like, can't believe that's just happened. Um, then you think about, the, you know, oh, we've missed track time. You start to think about, you know... <laughs> The, the competitive nature kicks in straight away and we're going to, this is not going to help our result. This is only practice, right? That's thinking, what you start you know, thinking about. Yeah, you're thinking about your teammates. Not good. So, yeah, go back to the pits and they're like, you know, how, you know what happened? I said, well, pff, mate, it just took off, got light in the front and obviously aero pressure all, all, all at the rear. And so they went through all the data and it was seven tenths of a second. So it was only from full throttle to me being on the brake was like inside a second, but it was just still too late. Um so we had Friday off, which is traditionally a rest day at Le Mans, and Mercedes built up a brand new car, built a brand new car from Germany actually. So we got all all rigged up, which was just, let's say, in grey within the rules was was uh, would be a, a small understatement. But they got the car ready um, because you weren't allowed to sort of enter another car. But they, you know, this is Mercedes at Le Mans, RR. So there was some, you know, got a car ready. And then I went out on my first lap. So I was ready to go, mate. I was absolutely over it mentally, strong, no worries. Here we go. We're ready for the race. Let's just get back on the horse and I've got to get going again. Because yeah. Mercedes wouldn't believe the first one. You know, because there was no photos. There was no, there was no, there was nothing to prove that this actually. They didn't think it had flipped. No, that it was, un still, it was totally unbelievable. You know, they were like, mm, not so sure, you know, but I'm like, guys, how does the roof get damaged? You know, how does it, you know, how do, how do we, 
get the orientation factor into this, you know, with the reverse pike twist crash that I had. <laughs> Ten from the Russian uh, judges. Exactly, yeah. Um, it's not possible. So we went. I went back out in a brand new car on Saturday morning. I remember following my teammate out, Bernd Schneider, a really good mate of mine, like a brother. He's a bloody sensational bloke. Followed Bernd out for the warm-up. Saturday morning, first lap, same thing happened again, straight up in the air. So it happened twice within, you know, a day and a half, which not a lot of people realise. I thought I had one, but I actually had two. Um, and, and at that vision point, of this one, different mentality for me. Um, it was like I don't want any. I'm not going to be lucky twice. So I virtually resigned myself to the fact that I'm going to get killed in this crash. And it's like I don't want any pain. I just want it over quick. Just, just please, just turn the lights off. Don't you know? I don't want fire because the other thing with these things, if they're upside down, you can't get out. And if it does catch fire, that's mate. That was one of our worst nightmares in those cars. Um, which is which is, has happened in the past, and thankfully now the fuel cells and everything are much much sa- much more safer. But I'm just like, I'm not going to be lucky twice here. This is quick again. The trees are in play. Uh, slightly wider section of the track, so it's end of Molsan Strait, uh, which they've now since changed the track. From that flip when I had that in '99, they actually changed the curvature of the top of that crest. They've actually flattened the top section of it off for that reason. Um, and again, massive shunt. Uh, down the down the road. This time the car didn't right itself, so I'm finished up on the roof, um, and I'm panicking. At this point, I'm waiting for this thing to go up. I, you know, I was I was worried, and it just seemed forever for the marshals to get to me with with extinguishers and whatnot. Anyway, got out, and then I made that decision. Then that's it. I'm done. I do not want to get back in these cars again because I was just like, I've done nothing wrong here. These things are just you know, and the trust, mate. That was the thing. You've got so much trust in the people that design these cars and, and the people that are telling you everything's going to be all right. And it's the first time you really have been exposed to, you know, people that there's there's a bit of a black art going on here. They're not quite under sure the envelope of these cars and you're sort of in these things going, uh, they're not quite sh- sure of what you're, what you're driving. So that was real tough learnings for me. And off the back of that, Mercedes pulled out of racing in that championship. I was unemployed and we were back to square one again. On that topic, and it's a good point to bring it up, obviously through the years there's been deaths in motorsport, there's been one in Formula One in recent times. When you're in that situation, how do you ever get in a car again? Because we think of you guys as, you know, devil may care, playboy, just get in there and just rev it up and away we go again how, how do you actually get back in a car in that situation oh, i think you we know you've got so much experience so you draw from that uh you've got to understand how it happened why it happened what are the learnings from it clearly there will be there can be it's either a misjudgment or a technical failure so either all those things you, you can have a crash and depending on how unlucky or or lucky you are mm. um the result can be can be clearly very different so we know that we doing we're doing high speeds. We can't hurt ourselves, um, but but when you've got the helmet on, you feel. I mean, for ninety percent of my career, I never thought I could hurt myself in a racing car. You know, you just got that level of confidence, borderline arrogance that you'll be fine because you're all you're thinking about is a stopwatch. You just want to go quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker. So you will have bumps in the road. So you will have a crash. And then the team will have the car ready for you sometimes within five minutes. Five minutes, we're back in. Go again. What about that other 10% of the time? Yeah. Well, that was late in my career. Right. So late in my career, I, I had more 
doubts about why am I doing this? I don't need to do this anymore. There is some risk there. And for me, I didn't really see... Um, well, I'd seen too many movies as well in my head. I'd seen... I had At that point, you nearly got too much experience. You, you the, the naivety has clearly worn off yeah. and you start to get a bit more sensible with... Uh, with your micro decisions and the and and the granule point of of the fifty fifties that come into play, which are always on the radar in our game because you've got it's just decision making process processes all the time, um, and varying scales of risk inside those decisions. So yeah, later in my career, you know there were certain scenarios which I'm just like, I don't need to really do that. I don't want to r- drive at Le Mans um, hmm. at night in the rain. I have done it didn't particularly enjoy it because I'm just like, yeah, I feel that there is uh, more things out of my control and in my control. So where, when I was younger, that's a scenario for me, I'm totally going to back myself. I'm going to say, you know, this is an opportunity for me to do something different and special and, and, and show other people that they can't do what I can do. Where when you're older, you think, well, (laughs) done that before. I don't need to, you know, don't need to prove that anymore. I know I have been able to do it. Can I do it forever? No. Get over it. Get your head around it. That's just how it is. You can't, you know, every sportsman and woman gets to a point in their career they can't do what they used to be able to do. And why is it? Because the, 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 the sharpness, the, the eyes, you know, your eyes, your, your middle ear, your concentration, your hunger, your focus, all those ingredients that go into the mix um, just in the end, make you perform maybe not as good because you've got too much baggage as well in your head sometimes. In our game, it's not like the yips in golf or, or tennis where second or whatever. It's actually, for, I mean, for me personally anyway, it was it was the, it was more the danger side that come into me. It wasn't like the lap times were slowing down. I was like, well, I don't actually don't. There was more parts of my job that I wasn't prepared to do. Do you think of yourself as a courageous person? Uh... Not, not overly. Uh, no, I think that my sport, through all of my education and those those grounding years, they I can do something different to a lot of other people. Clearly, yeah. Uh, guys that go to the military and and do those type of operations and job that's that's for me is is brave. They're very brave guys. Uh, and you know, courage and bravery. It's a very interesting topic for our sport because. You know, most people cannot do what we can do. Or f- f- racing drivers at that level, there's 99.9% need not apply because most people get in with us, even in fast road cars, and don't enjoy it because the frame rate, the calibration of what's coming at them, it's just like, it's so abnormal, you know. But so we're, we're, I suppose we're courageous at what, you know, what we do in our small you know, that's our MO in that small small mm. window. But, you know, outside that, we're just normal we're just normal blokes, mate. You know, we we you know, it's like the Isle of Man T T guys. They race motorbikes around the Isle of Man. But you know, you talk to John McGuinness, good mate of mine. So you think he's courageous? Not overly, but clearly he is. But he's like, you know, I trust myself, I've got the experience, I know what the bike can do, I know what I can do. There's consequences, absolutely. And that's what he's good at. More of Mark Webber in a moment. Firstly, I need to say last week's episode was enormously well received. Lots and lots and lots of downloads. So thanks for everyone that's getting on board the Howie Games. It featured former VFL star and now the main man on Channel 9's AFL footy show, Sam Newman. A man who, it must be said, seemingly has it all. However, that's not always been the case for Sam. 
I was absolutely stone motherless broke. So I remember sitting in a friend's house. I stayed at the back of my great friend of 60 years, a man called Kevin King, dental technician. Yep. Stayed out in the back of his shop for a year. So you didn't have in a like, room. Didn't have a cent. Did not have a cent. Did, did not, could. I was on the world of sport and I used to, on Channel 7, I used to um, take the Ballantine's chocolates and the um, the cheese that they used to give it, then the Patra orange juice. I used to take that home. That was, I used, used to sustain myself on the freebies that I used to get from the world of sport. That's last week's episode with Sam Newman. By the way, if you get the opportunity, please, if you could, subscribe to the Howie Games. Just hit the subscribe button on iTunes or on Podcast One. It sort of helps us grow, which in turn helps me to bring you more episodes and hopefully brings us back for Series 3 of the Howie Games. Alrighty, enough of that. Let's get back to Mark Webber. So how do you deal with... So, you know, we've just seen the Australian Open tennis final. We were talking about Roger and Rafa and how they're elite athletes or, you know, Ricky Ponting, these guys they're not going to face the same consequences if things go mm. wrong. We had Jules Bianchi mm. in Formula One. Um, I remember interviewing Marco Simoncelli at Phillip Island and two weeks later in Malaysia, he was no longer. How do you guys as professionals deal with death in your own sport? Yeah, um, a lot of sports don't have it, you're right. Um, so because the speed's there, because there's there's opportunities for... Uh, accidents and crashes that the body can't deal with. Mm. You know the loads, the loads are too high, or you're 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 really really unlucky. Um, and both those cases with 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 uh, with Jules and with with Marco, there were totally freak timings and accidents. You know, there's been there has been uh, bigger crashes and 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 worse scenarios unfold, but um, guys have walked away from that. Uh, so to answer your question, mate, I think that, you know, we know what's on the radar. Um, you know, I carried my mate's coffin uh, a few years back, Justin Wilson, um, and that's tough to see the destruction on the family, mate, more. You know, I had Justin on my shoulder there, but I'm thinking, I'm walking down there going, <sighs> see his wife, see his family, the destruction that that caused. You know, we love our sport. We race. You know, we... we we are selfish. We know there's consequences. And, and again, as I said, for, for a huge majority of my career, I didn't think about my family or think about anything to do with that, mm. you know, where um, when you do go to those, uh, go to a funeral and things like that, it's like it hits you. It's like actually this is, we are one big family in a way and, and, and the family that are immediately close to that, you're like, yeah, knock some... You know, smashes them as as as, as it clearly it should do. Um, so then you've <laughs> that was tough to sort of get that balance of in your own head. Like you know, is all this worth it? You know, it is selfish, uh, but you just you can't give it up. You just you can't not back yourself again and go again and say, yeah, we know that on the line on the day something might happen, could happen. You know, we we are open to it. But, you know, it's not, it's not um, without trivialising lawn bowls, but it's not mm. lawn bowl. It's not, like you say, it's not tennis. Tennis, you no. can, you know, okay, we can sprain your ankle, you can do... Mate, I love Roger and Rafa, you know, I love... I'm a massive sports fan, but there is sports which come with more risk than others, clearly. You know, like, 
um, kids pool, the downhill ski race. You know, those guys, mate, 130k now, whatever they're doing down ski. Consequences, you know, motorbike race. You know, there's lots of sports which do have consequences. So, is it worth that risk? Uh, it, looking obviously, back now, yes. as a bloke that's succeeded and retired yep. and done brilliantly, and life is fantastic, is it obviously, worth yes. that risk? Totally, yes. Is it? I mean, for me, it's worth big consequences because for you, worth thinking you, you, twice that you're going to die. Well, I think in your head, you like I said, mate. For most of my time, I never did think like that. When so, you're in that car in yeah. in the back yeah. of the morning, yeah. thinking about but that. But we're huh? very good at then. The body, the body's, the mind is incredible at you know, you know, dealing with that, and then post that, you're like, okay, it did happen. But let's think of all the positive things before that. You know, was it out of my hands? Yes. Then. A year, a year later, exactly the same accident, similar accident. Michaeli Alberto got killed in a similar accident to what I had, mm. you know, because he landed in soft grass and the roll hoop dug in and he broke his neck. And you're like, Phew. you know, so it is. You 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 know, made us there, um, and we we're all clearly shattered and disappointed when when someone does pay the ultimate price but we get back on the horse uh very very quickly and that's just the way we're wired up and a lot of people don't like it i suppose in some ways but we 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 don't as i say for me personally i didn't go into the car thinking every single time that there, there could be something that could happen it's, mm. it's just you're so confident and got so much i mean i suppose the skill component is so high i can deal with most scenarios that if the car doesn't have a failure, which is one of, mind you, that's one of the biggest problems that a driver can have is a mechanical failure because then you are out of control. Mm. But if you if the car is operationally sound, it's on your watch to, to look after yourself and make the right decisions. I've taken us down a bit of a detour here, um, pardon the pun. Mm. At this stage, you haven't got a job. You've given up on your Mercedes because it's mm. through the forest. You haven't got a job. So what, what's happening now? This, so, this, this plan of Formula One is just yeah, looking a bit edgy at this point. Shocking. So back... Uh, yeah, yep. Um, as you say, mate, unemployed, no, uh, no work, no drive. Uh, in mid, from mid ninety ninety nine onwards, and um, and knew Eddie Jordan from a thousand years ago, and uh, I went to see Eddie quite a bit and just harassed him, and you know, even followed him to a petrol station one day and said, Eddie, come on, just give me a test, even some straight line work, what we call in Formula One, where you can just do simple aerodynamic runs and operationally stuff, just test the car and, and basic stuff like that. You followed him to a petrol station, yeah, following him, stalker style, yep, total stalker style, mate. Come on, mate, give me a run. And I think even to this day, Eddie takes the takes takes the the piss out of me because he's like, um. Yeah, mate, you, you wanted it. You know, it's like he, a bit of fun. And it's like in, in a good way. He's like, mate, you know that, you know. And then he introduced me to Paul Stoddart. So Eddie said, there's a guy over the road today actually testing at Silverstone because I was at the factory. Eddie was based at um, in Silverstone there. They had the Formula One team there. And I go to the gym there and I say, come on, give me a chance, just something, you know. Rah. And then um, he said, go and see Stoddy. Australian, massive petrol head. He's a guy you need because... Financially, he can make a difference for you, uh, and that's what we did. And I did then a deal with Stoddy to do Formula Three Thousand, which was a step below F One at that time. So I went back in from sports cars, which was Mercedes. I mean, the fastest sports cars in the world, albeit, but it was also a detour away from F One because you're not. If you do that, I'm, clearly I'm not doing F One. I want to get back in single seaters, which is Formula Racing. And Stoddy said, 
let's have a test. So they took me for a test down in Wales, in Pembury, which is like junction 6,000 on the M4, um, and <laughs> went down there, and um, it was blowing a, you know, blow a dog off a chain, mate, down there. It was like going a howler, and, and they said, yep, looks all right. Let's do a deal for next year. And uh, and Stoddy's team had only... Because back then, you had to the team had to qualify, right? So there was like only... Um, 12 teams allowed in the, in the series and there was like 18 teams trying to get in so six teams didn't didn't wouldn't make the cut and his team was the last team from the 99 season to actually make the cut so I was going into a pretty average operation to be honest um, and yeah not uh, so Stoddy would pay for all my you know I didn't need to bring any didn't need to bring a budget or, 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 or sponsorship so Stoddy would just you know pay for everything and we Smashed that season, went really well. Um, How much is paying for everything costing? So at that Ish. time, Stoddy 1.1 sterling, 1.1 million sterling. So he put all that in wow. and some Arrows Formula One tests as well in the Formula One car. Um, so that was what I owed him. Um, at some point, he said, "Okay, I'd love. This is not a charity. At some point, if this goes well, uh, we need to have some of this back. Um, <laughs> so that's motivation, not, if not all of it." Um, so, but it went really well. I focused on the driving, focused on the racing. Uh, yeah, top three in the first three races, won the fourth race at Silverstone. So, you know, going, going really well. Um, and as the season went on, um, you know, we continued to get some good results. And then, the, and then Flavio then got on board. Flavio was then involved saying, well, Benetton are having a look at you. We'd like you to maybe test the car and... And I had a test for them mid-season. And from then on, my former 3000 results sort of struggled a bit because I was actually did the Benetton contract sort of mid-99, late-99, the back end of the season. And um, I uh, got distracted, you know, sort of, sort of hurt my campaign a little bit in 99 and then 2000 because then I went continued in that same category below F1 in, in, in former 3000 when Flavio signed me up and he took over the 1.1 debt. He took over the 1.1 debt from Stoddy and Stoddy paid that. He said, I paid Stoddy off in, in whatever. They sorted that out between themselves, which I didn't get involved in. Um, but then, so we'll, we'll um, huh. start with, yeah, I'm going to, Flavio was going to manage me and um, yeah, that was it. So I did the Benetton deal um, and raced in former 3000 the year after and off we went. 3,000 and then into Minardi's. Flavio started to negotiate me into my Formula One seats. A couple of points to, to make there. Flavio being Flavio Briatore, just sort of your real tanned, grey-haired, ciao, bella, Italian stallion, operator, mate. Italian stallion. And when <laughs> I had the pleasure of working on Formula One, and it's still one of my great regrets that I quit working for Bernie uh, the year before you started racing the F3000. And I used to get hold of all the boys and say, keep an eye off this Aussie boy, he's going to dominate in the F3000. <laughs> Not knowing anything about you, but because you're an Aussie, he used to get around the paddock with Naomi Campbell, the supermodel on his arm, Flavio at this stage, um, a larger-than-life character. So he, he mm. became your manager. Mm. Yep. Two yep. more different cats I don't think you'd ever meet. You That's from right. Queen Bean and Flavio Briatore. Yep. Exactly. Uh, so he had quite a few drives on his book at the time. Uh, Yano True, Legion, Colour, Fisichella, Fernando also, four of us. So, um, and absolutely. I, you know, socially I didn't really, you know, do anything with Flavio. Um, but the rules of engagement were pretty clear. Uh, that's going to be, you know, we had our, we had all the financials drawn up. If this flies, if you do well, then that's going to be what's going to happen. And and mate, 
the percentage of what he was taking was, you know, what's the percentage if you've got nothing anyway, right? So I had, at that point, I had nothing. So you can't negotiate um, really, can you? Totally not, absolutely not. I remember the la- one of the fu- last phone calls I had with him because when we did the, and these are long-term contracts too, by the way, you know, these boys don't muck around at that time. So um, Long-term, like a couple ten of years. years. T- 10 years? 10 years, yeah. <laughs> 10 years. So you're, you're you know, reasonably committed to the project, let's say. And, yes. um And... I had some legal advice to try and tweak a few things at the last minute, see if we can get this over the line. Right, oh, right. Yeah. And I remember I was on a training camp. We used to take myself to Threadbow in most off-seasons and just on my own, I used to go and hang out up at Threadbow and just f- flog myself, you know, training-wise for about two weeks, two or three weeks up there um, on my Pat Malone. And um, and the lawyer said, if you can get hold of Flavio and just mention this point to him, rah, rah. so I rang Rosella, his PA at the time, over there in, in the UK, and um, she was so she was always so reliable getting back to you. Because at the time, mate, you, you know, you're bricking yourself, you know, you've got to, you know, I've got to get this right. And Flavio then rang back and said, um, yeah, Mark Rosella said, you've been in touch. I said, yeah, just, just like one point. Um, he says, look, Weber, I talk now. There's a few expletives in there. He said, I talk now. He signed the contract or nothing. Bang, hung up. <laughs> And it's like, <laughs> all right, um, oh, best I won't get that change through then. So um, off we went. And uh, one of the best things I ever did, absolutely one of the best things I ever did. Uh, he was uh, ferociously loyal. Um, I could not have followed him through through him placing me, um, you know, and the advice and the teams all the way through. Um, and right up until my Porsche is, which, uh, you know, he said like, look, you've done that deal yourself, I'm not interested, that's fine. So he had totally still could have, but um, uh, had some skin in the game there, but he was brilliant, really, really good. Uh, we are an hour in, and we, <laughs> we, we haven't actually got you started at Minardi yet. Can I take up some more yeah, of your time? Yeah, no, right, yeah. Okay. I'm just going to turn the washing machine off. Yeah, you, you right? turn the washing machine off. I'll hit pause here for a sec. That's it for the first week of Mark Webb. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please come back for next week when we actually get into the world of Formula One. Very nice work as always. While I'm in Jamaica, Michael James is back getting this all happening in South Melbourne. So thanks to MJ. Obviously, he's overworked and underpaid, but who's not? He continues to get the job done. Also, everyone at Podcast One firing along nicely. That's about all from me in Jamaica. Take it easy. Have a wonderful week. Until next week, as always, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.